Oh, man, this thing's heavy. This is not going well. <laughs> Let me move it up here. All right, there we go. All right, are you ready for Christmas? I'm not sure if I am or not. Okay, if you're under 20, you probably don't remember that. Um, how many remember the Vietnam conflict? Going back in the 60s, 70s? Uh, still quite a few. How many remember the Cold War and the threat of communism in the 50s? Oh, we're narrowing you down now. How many remember World War II? Do any of you go back to the Civil War? <laughs> those were all times of major certainty in the life of our nation. All of those were times of crisis. And of course, there's many, many more along the way. But today I want to look at a nation and a king who faced uncertainty and crisis in the Old Testament. Today and next week, I'm going to take a text from the Old Testament that we hear every Christmas, but it actually has an Old Testament background behind it. Because centuries before Christ was born, there were prophecies and promises of this coming Messiah. So we're going to look at the background of the word Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. Okay, Matthew 1.20 is where we get this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That word Emmanuel is found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, written about 750 years before Jesus was born. Many prophecies in the Bible have two fulfillments. The immediate, which is fulfilled within a generation or so, sometimes a few months, sometimes a few years. And then there's a distant fulfillment several centuries later. And a lot of prophecy is that way. And there's really two Emmanuels. There is one that is in Isaiah's day, and then there's one, of course, Jesus Christ, 750 years later. So today I want to look at that original Emmanuel and how he informs us today of our Emmanuel starting in Isaiah 7.1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Josiah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and the people were shaken as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. Now there's a lot of gobbledygook in there and a lot of nations and names, so let's decipher this. There are four name, main nations that are mentioned. If I can get the map up here, please. There we go. There we go. And you can't see this real well. I know where you're at. But down here is Judah. That's people of God, the southern kingdom. Uh, Jerusalem's right there. Here's Israel, the northern kingdom. They're also the people of God. They had a split. Um, and then over here is, up here is Aram or Syria, and it mentions that here. And then way up here, not even on the map, is the up-and-coming world power, which is Assyria in this time of history. Now, what's going on here is that Aram and Israel, these two, and these are pretty small nations. These are not very powerful. Assyria is the one to look out for. Aram and Israel, they invite Judah to join them in an alliance against Assyria. So there'd be three little dogs against the one big dog. Judah says no. So Israel and Aram decide, okay, we're going to attack Judah. So they come down. These two little dogs come down and attack Judah, and they surround Jerusalem, and which is really silly because the real threat is up here, the up-and-coming Assyrians. Um, and at this point in our time, Jerusalem is scared. I mean, they're, they're, these, they're the little dogs surrounded by two other little dogs, and because they're under attack, it says they are shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They are scared spitless. So Ahaz, king of Judah, 
considers appealing to Assyria, the big dog, for help. Is that clear as mud? Uh, that's politics. The most basic thing we need to know, the question facing Ahaz, the king of Judah, is who are you going to trust? In this time of uncertainty and fear, are you going to trust Assyria to protect you? Are you going to put your faith in a political alliance with an ungodly nation? Are you going to make a pact with the devil? Or are you going to trust God to deliver you? And Ahaz is thinking, I'm surrounded by these armies, and God doesn't have done anything. As far as I know, God hasn't have done a thing. Can I really trust him? You ever ask that? I haven't seen God do anything. Can I really trust him? And the two questions that our text poses in the midst of uncertain times and bad times, number one, what do you fear? And number two, what do you trust? Or who do you fear and who do you trust in uncertain times? I want you to take a moment and just write down, if you have a pen, if you don't, just pretend you're writing. Think of, anyway, one fear that you have. You can write down more if you want to. One fear that you have. Because fear is very powerful. Sometimes we act out of fear not even knowing we act out of fear. I remember reading a book called The DNA of Relationships. And the gist of the book is that when we have problems in relationships, the problem is rarely the problem. At the core of the relational issue of every relationship is fear. Fear is something. When there's a conflict, you can be pretty sure that there's a core fear involved. Now, we know there's different kinds of fears, like phobias or the personal fears we have, fear of speaking in public, fear of small places, fear of dark, fear of heights, fear of snakes, fear of elevators, and things like that. Second category would be temporal fears, fears that threaten our well-being in this life, a fear of loneliness, fear of safety for our children, fear that I'm not a good mom or dad, fear of relationship with the opposite sex, inability to care for my ill spouse, or fear of disappointing others. There's all kinds of temporal fears. Third category, I'm going to call eternal fears, being concerned about the number of people who won't make it to heaven. A loved one going the way of the world instead of following Christ. A spouse not experiencing a true relationship with Jesus. Those are all fears. Fear of being separated from God or fear that Christianity might be a hoax. And then a fourth category I call ungrounded fears. And one of those would be fear of Christianity being a hoax, of course. But also uh, people who fear not getting forgiveness from God because they've been so bad. Well, that's ungrounded. God will forgive no matter what. Fear of not being loved by God. Uh, fear of not being accepted by God. Those are ungrounded fears. So we have these different fears in our lives. And there's this fear in Isaiah 7 where they're shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind, trembling in fear because they're surrounded by the enemy. You know, if Mount Pulaski were surrounded by terrorists, we'd be doing the same thing. We'd be shaken in fear. And that's the picture here. So in the midst of this fear of Isaiah 7 comes Emmanuel, God with us. If you were raised in a Christian home, you probably were told as a kid many times, don't be afraid, God is with you. Don't be afraid, Jesus will be with you. A five-year-old boy was in the kitchen as his mother made supper, and she asked him to go into the cellar to get a can of soup for her. He didn't want to go alone. He said, it's dark and it's scary down there, and I don't want to go down there. And mom said, it's okay, Jesus will be with you. So the little boy walked hesitantly to the cellar door and slowly opened it. He peeked inside. It was dark and it was scary. He started shutting the door. And then he got an idea. He opened it again. He looked down there. And he said, Jesus, if you're down there, would you bring up a can of tomato soup? (laughs) Well, we tell kids, God is with you. You don't have to be afraid of the dark. But I think we need to tell ourselves God is with us in the midst of any darkness. This section of scripture is united around the themes of trust 
and fear. Do you trust the nations or do you trust God, Ahaz? Do you fear the nations, Ahaz, or do you fear God? And it is so tempting to put your trust in the nations. Our nation is the most powerful nation on earth. Uh, We're rich. Why not trust in our nation? I imagine the Roman Empire had the same attitude. Why not trust in Rome? No one can stand up to Rome. Where's Rome today? I imagine the Babylonians had the same attitude. No one can defeat us. Where are they today? The Assyrians said the same thing. So did the Greeks, the Germans, the Soviet Union. So does the United States. And God says these nations are temporary. Don't put your trust in nations. It is interesting to me how people now expect from government what they used to expect from God. The government will take care of us. The government will provide. The government will protect. The government will make our lives better. And then when things go bad in my life, it's the government's fault. It might be more honest to put on our coins in government we trust. And that's the question for Ahaz. You trust your government or you trust God? And the most basic truth in Isaiah 7, God can be trusted. The governments cannot. The nations will not last. Then verse 3 says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, share Jeshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. One of the emphasis in this section is the use of children. Take your child, your son, share Jehub. Don't you love biblical names? And a little bit we'll run into Emmanuel, another child. And then chapter 8 is another child. And then chapter 9 is more children. What's going on? All these children. Two attitudes, trust and fear, are in these chapters. They dominate And the two entities that dominate in these chapters are nations and children. Why those two? Nations are powerful. Children are not. So you have the powerful and the weak, the nations and children. And yet it is in the children that God works. The great power of Assyria versus the little power of a child. Which one are you going to trust Ahaz? Up in Rockford, we were involved in some inner city missions. And that's probably as up close as I've been able to see how the government operates Uh, in the inner city. And these inner city missions that were not government funded did not have near the resource, didn't have near the money, near the power that the government has. But as I observed, I saw which ones was changing lives. The government is not changing the inner city. Donald Trump cannot fix Chicago. Who really has the power? Nations or God's children? Children don't have any power, do they? (laughs) I remember sitting at LCU once. We had hundreds and hundreds of people there in church. One baby started screaming and captured the whole audience, had everyone. So it doesn't look like they have children, but they do. And Isaiah uses children to remind Ahaz the real power is not always in the things that look like power. Verse 4, say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, just like we tell our kids. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Don't fear these little dogs. They have their smoldering stumps. They're smoking leftovers from a burned-out fire. Aram and Israel's power is gone. They're not going to last. Verse 5, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah, son of plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. These two kings have announced their plans to tear you apart. Ahaz, don't listen to him. I'm in control, and it's not going to happen. And then down verse 11, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, said, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God says, Ahaz, I want to help your faith along, 
So ask for a sign and ask anything in the high, deepest depths, the highest heights. Ask the sun to go dark. Ask the moon to explode. Ask me to make a mountain move. Ask me anything. There's no limit to what you may ask. Wouldn't you love God to do that for you? You can have any sign you want. Just ask for it. What would you ask for? But Ahaz said in verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz is alluding to Deuteronomy 6 where you are not to test the Lord. So it looks like he has so much faith he doesn't need a sign. But it's a cover-up. Because in verse 13, Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? God gets mad because Ahaz doesn't want a sign. Apparently, Ahaz does not want evidence that God is the one to trust because Ahaz has already made up his mind to trust in Assyria, get that big dog on his side, and he doesn't want some sign or evidence that may show that his decision to get, go after Assyria is a mistake. And so he says, God, I don't want a sign. I'm not going to test you, which sounds good. But what he really means, God, I've already made up my mind, so don't confuse me with the facts. And then the Christmas text, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, and it won't be a moon exploding or the sun going dark. The sun will be a child named Emmanuel. God is with you. And it's the same with Jesus. Jesus comes into the world, and God says, I'm with you, world. I'm on your side. But like Ahaz, the world says, we don't trust you. We don't really want you. Verse 15, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. We don't know who this Emmanuel is, this first one. Maybe it's Isaiah's boy, maybe it's Ahaz's, but he'll eat curds and honey, which is an odd-sounding food for, for a child. Curds and honey is actually symbolic of the wilderness. Eating curds and honey is prophetic of what will happen to Israel and Aram. These two little dogs that are surrounding Jerusalem are going to become like a desert. And before this kid knows right from wrong, in the next, I don't know, 5 to 12 years, that's going to happen. So Emmanuel is a sign that God is with Judah, and they will be saved from these two little nations, and God will deliver them. And today, Emmanuel is the same thing. It's a sign that we can be saved, God will deliver us, and he is with us. But here's the part of the Emmanuel sign we often miss. Verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Ahaz, instead of these little puppies, you're going to get a Rottweiler. And it's going to get ugly. Because you rejected me and trusted Assyria, you're going to be destroyed, ironically, by Assyria. So there's two sides to this Emmanuel stuff. Two sides to God with us. The good news is Judah will be delivered from her neighbor's threat. The two puppies will be gone. The bad news is because Ahaz depended on political alliances rather than God, he has unleashed a power that will come sweeping over Ahaz and his nation. And the rest of the chapter describes the devastation. Verse 20, In that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head in private parts and to cut off your beard also. In other words, it's going to get ugly. When you reject Emmanuel, destruction will come. Let me give you some insights on trust and fear from this whole text. Number one, whatever a person trusts in place of God will one day turn and devour him or her. Ahaz trusts in Assyria. Assyria is going to turn and destroy him. 
Same for us. You trust in power, that power will eat you up. You'll get addicted to it. You trust in popularity, it'll devour you. You crave popularity and pats on the back, it'll eat you up. You trust in money, you'll be devoured by money. You trust in yourself, you're going to be consumed by selfishness. It'll destroy you. What you grab onto will eventually bite you. You trust in your family over God, that's a dead end too. Whatever you trust in place of God will turn and somehow hurt you. Second lesson. What you fear is usually what you trust. Which sounds odd, but it is true. Ahaz fears the power of nations, you know, Aram and Israel. So what's he do? He puts his trust in the power of nations. The more powerful nation is Syria. So if you fear the power of nations, you're going to trust in the power of nations. If you fear not having enough money, you're going to put your trust in money. If you fear not being loved, you're going to put your trust in relationships. And you do anything you can to be loved. What we fear determines what we trust. That's why we're told to fear God. Because then we'll tend to trust God. We can even go one step further. What you fear is often what you worship. If you fear losing youth and aging, you're going to worship youth and do everything you can to stay young. If you fear physical danger, you're going to worship physical safety. If you fear not being liked, you're going to worship popularity. If you fear your kid not being happy, you're going to worship their happiness and do everything you can to make that happen. What you fear is what you'll trust and what you will worship. So tell me your fears. And I'll tell you what's important to you and what you trust and even what you worship. If you fear failure above all else, you'll worship success above all else. This is so critical. Tell me what you ultimately fear. And I'll tell you what you worship. My mother and dad put the fear of God in me. And I will always be grateful. Emmanuel is mentioned again in chapter 8, and then verse 13 sums up this entire whole section. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. In other words, make God the most significant fact of your existence. He is the one to ultimately fear. Go back to relationships. If you fear not being loved, you're going to do all you can to be loved, and you're going to end up doing maybe some even gun-godly things and usually end up making it worse. But if you fear God first, you'll love the right way and have the right perspective. You fear God first, and it gets the right perspective on all these other temporal phobias and fears that we have. Here's the fourth thing. This means that fear is not always bad. Not always a bad thing. Hebrews 11:7. In holy fear, Noah built an ark to save his family. Many times in the Bible, we are commanded to fear God. Most everything that's worthwhile in life is scary. Choosing a college, choosing a career, getting married. Having a baby, all those things are scary, even terrifying at times. If it's not fearful, it's probably not worthwhile. When you're getting married, you better have a little fear. There's a sign on the door of a marriage license bureau, out to lunch, think it over. <laughs> then after you get married, there's things to fear. There was a woman who gained a few pounds after they got married, and it was most noticeable to her when she squeezed into her pair of old blue jeans and wondering if the added weight was noticeable to everyone else, she asked her husband, Honey, do these jeans make me look like the side of a barn? Now at that point, he needs to have a lot of fear. He said, No, dear, not at all. Most barns aren't blue. Anything important should strike a certain amount of fear in us. Fear is not always bad, but too often we fear the wrong things. 
Our ultimate fears are too often the immediate things, the temporal things. We fear that people won't like us. We fear we won't succeed. We fear the economy. We fear for our health. And those are very real. I'm not putting those down. But God says, fear the big things first. Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. That's temporal. Fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. See, my greatest fear for my kids and my grandkids is not economic and it's not health. Those are concerns, of course, but those are secondary. My biggest fear is for their eternal destiny. What good is it if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? What good is it if they are healthy and wealthy but not wise? Every one of us here, we all have a combination of temporal and eternal fears, and they're both very real and they're legitimate, but the big ones are the eternal ones. And too many of us fear the temporal and not the eternal. Do not fear the wrong things. Fear God. And the irony is if you fear the big things, the eternal things, the other fears tend to dissipate. They're still very real, but when you fear God, the other fears are put in perspective. There's an old hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim if you turn your eyes upon Jesus. So Psalm 56.3 says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. All these temporal fears are really, in the big picture, little dogs. They're smoldering stumps. And Isaiah says to us, as he says to Ahaz, do not fear what they fear. The Lord Almighty, he is the one to fear. So this Christmas season... I think it would be a good question to ask, what do I ultimately fear? What is number one fear in my life? Tell me what your ultimate fear is, and I'll tell you what you trust and what you worship and what's important to you. Emmanuel, God is with us. Fear him, and all these other fears will dissipate. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we all have fears, and they're real. We all things that cause us uncertainty and cause us to wonder. But you came to be with us, Emmanuel. And the good news is we have the hope of life and eternal unending joy for those who accept you. And Lord, we just need your help to trust in you and to worship you, to make you the center of our lives, to make you the one we fear above all other fears. Thank you for this Christmas season that reminds us, once again, you are here. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.